Tough Love is brought to you by my new book, Love Language. It's my memoir that centres around family, music, food and finding love. It's out now at all good bookstores across Australia and online. Links are in the show notes for you. And for now, enjoy this episode. The conditions are eerie. One of the roads is closed. One of the roads is closed. There's only one way out. (laughs) My friend Michael Ferraro and I are hooning around the narrow, bendy roads of the Royal National Park. No streetlights. No streetlights. Ferraro is going too fast for comfort around these bendy, windy, windy corners as we make our way deeper into the bush. Into the bush. We're on our way to visit Ariane. We've decided we're going to make a horror film and this is going to be the opening scene. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) Well, firstly, the title's Unrest. (laughs) It's all set over the course of one night and it's about a couple of friends. (laughs) Stop doing that. That make their way into the wilderness to visit a friend, a, a vulnerable, a vulnerable friend who is heavily pregnant. And distressed. And, and, and in need of friendship and our divine company. All right, mate. All right, close up those grain waves. We're going to need them. So we have finally arrived in Bundina to visit our little friend Ariane and it is pitch black in the streets here. You might remember Ariane or Arnie as my friend that I FaceTimed to keep me company during Thank that you. first terrifying day of hormone injections when I froze my eggs back in 2021. I'm so busting to do away. At the time, she was doing her second round of egg collection. Okay. We are approaching the house. Hello. Hello. The person that I could look to who was a step ahead of me. Hello. And now she's pregnant. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Welcome. I'm sorry that it took us a bit longer. It was... um, But we scripted... Oh, we wrote a great horror film on the way. Great. Oh, this is... Arnie's been hiding out here, her little refuge between the pristine beach and the green eucalyptus trees of the Royal National Park in Bundina, out of the city for almost a year now. Oh, are you in here tonight? Which is why I haven't seen her in person for seven months, almost the entire length of her pregnancy. I remember talking to Arnie about what it would be like to be pregnant and to be a mum, and now... She's finally there. So it is the morning. We've done a sleepover at Ariane's place. (laughs) I need to get into position because there's an Arnie that's laying on a bed very comfortably. Are you okay? Hello. Yeah, sorry. I was just trying to chase a mosquito. (laughs) So things have changed. Tell us how, what has happened? Well, when we last spoke, I was doing a second round of egg freezing 
to freeze my dumb little eggs and um, <laughs> it was go- I thought it was going well but it was not really going that well it turns out I didn't, they only got two eggs again actually you know it's weird last night I was thinking about how many eggs they got and actually couldn't remember it was such a big deal at the time but then yeah I couldn't even remember how many eggs I got because since then I got pregnant um, without using the eggs Yep. As it turns out, after the rounds of egg collecting and the stress that she was feeling, Arnie got pregnant naturally. Stats show that actually 80 to 85% of women who freeze their eggs don't use them. Some women end up falling pregnant naturally, like Arnie, or for others, having children never ends up fitting into their lives for countless reasons. The response to me talking about freezing my eggs on Tough Love was amazing. It was easily one of our most popular and shared episodes from season one. And I really think it's cool that by sharing these experiences, it helped some people have a conversation about their fertility that they might not have otherwise. I was in a long-distance relationship. There was no chance of us, you know starting the family that we thought about. It was all of these things. Having sex at all. Having sex at all. all. I was like, (laughs) if I can at least go for an ultrasound and and they put a tube up (laughs) there, like, they're doing something. (laughs) This is me talking on Abby Chatfield's podcast, It's a Lot. Like Arnie was for me, I could be someone that people could look to who had done it before. And then do you pay for a storage fee, like a little like storage warehouse? Yeah, you, you pay, pay rent. rent. Okay. And eggs. is the rent much, or is it less you know, than the studio going in up. Sydney? Landlords yeah. are real no, jerks. You know, obviously <laughs> there's mould everywhere. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Of the women who do use their stored eggs, a smaller portion fall pregnant using them. But you can increase your odds by freezing more eggs. The more, the merrier, basically. I ended up doing two rounds of egg collection and there's no guarantees, but for me, while I couldn't be with Magnus, this felt like something positive I could do. I know that I've been looking for places where I can take back a bit of the control in what has felt like a really uncertain time. I feel very lucky that we got pregnant. You know, obviously it didn't happen straight away. It took a while, but it happened. So I'm now um, 35 weeks pregnant. The baby's going well. I have had a terrible time. I got this complication called symphysis pubis disorder, SPD. So it's where you're you make this hormone called relaxin that stretches out your joints um, in preparation for birth, which is good because you have to squeeze a giant baby out. But <laughs> if it gets too loose, your pelvis becomes unstable and that's really painful. So for me, it just created so much instability in my hips that I couldn't walk in the end. By 27 weeks, I had to stop work altogether and I was on crutches and there were days where I couldn't get out of bed myself. And then also my 
jaw has been really bad also because of the hormone and so I couldn't eat for a while either. It's been really bad. Something you should know about Arnie is she's the friend I go to when I want rational advice and information. She's a massive science geek, a researcher to her core, and so when faced with something like this, her instinct is to research her way out of it. I did a million things at once. I like got a new pillow, which was like 400 bucks bought this at 3am when I couldn't sleep um, and I was like crying in bed and then I have a medical sheepskin it's bright green and then I have like all my my painkillers jangle a few of your pills they're in a blister pack so (laughs) no jangling actually I wrote a list let me have a look have a little look Arnie is taking out her phone resting her hands on her belly I'm touching it now. Oh, a hot water bottle mm-hmm. in at all, so I can use it all night. I've got a, a belt that I have to wear that holds my pelvis together and then the crutches and then if it's really bad, I try and use a like have a hot bath. Mm-hmm. I tried hydrotherapy. I tried cold water. I've so take my word for it. This is a long fucking list. After trying a lot of things that didn't work, she did find some things that were helpful that alleviated some of the pain sometimes, but it was tough. When the pain was really bad, I think I got really depressed and I felt like we were quite isolated here physically. I didn't see anyone and no one really knew what was happening and so I couldn't and I couldn't talk about it. It was just, it was very depressing. How do you feel now? Like two weeks ago, the baby changed position and it seems to have got a lot better since then. So now I can walk. (laughs) I still have my crutches in the car and I still have to sleep with taking painkillers, baby safe painkillers, if anyone's listening. No one's listening. (laughs) Linda's dad, Michael, uh, I'm their baby safe. I don't think I realised how bad I was until the pain got better. Like I was just not a horrible person to be around. That's a bit harsh, but I was just super depressed when it was really bad. And now that it's better, I'm much happier. So that's great. There's a woman who lives nearby here that is a yoga teacher and she came to the house a couple of times when I was really, really bad to try and help me move. And she said she thinks that, like, this is sort of my body's way of preparing me for not being able to control everything. I don't think it's like, you know, a magical, mystical thing, but I think it's very true that I can't control everything. You can just sort of do as much as you can to try and mitigate the problems. I've been thinking about this a lot too. I do love feeling empowered. I like to feel like I'm taking charge of things. But I think there's something very strong in knowing when to let go. How do we let go of that need to control? With the stress of trying to move overseas, my family's health, my fucking face. Oh, and there was something else. A few weeks before I went to see Ariane, just when I thought I'd gotten on top of it, I saw the skin on my face heal, I knew my eggs were in that freezer, I was getting the visa paperwork together, 
something happened. This is the scene of the crime. Basically, because I'm a full Nigel, all I do all day is just pace around the park. One day, there were these three little kids. I was FaceTiming Magnus at the time, and I was talking to him about my day, blah, 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 I don't know, whatever, how many poos or coffees I've had, one of the two. I look at these kids, and there was two boys and a little girl, and they were playing on the stairs, and then... As I was walking past and kind of looking at them and going, oh, how cute. I noticed that they were playing with something and what they were playing with was a fucking massive rat. And they were petting it. They were trying to lift it up. It wasn't running away. It was just sitting like it was their pet. And they were trying to feed it leaves and stuff. And then the little girl, obviously, because I've stopped and I'm staring at them. The girl looks up at me and she's like, hello. Can I borrow your phone? So she takes my phone and she starts taking photos of this fucking rat that her little brother is petting. Then all of a sudden I think Magnus figures out what's happening and I hear this screaming from my phone going, Take back your phone! Take back your phone now! Take it back now! She gives me the phone back because she's really polite. Then he's like, Go! Go wash your hands! So then I'm legging it to the bathroom. I wash my hands... And then I keep walking, I go on my merry way, probably listening to some dumb horror podcast. The rest of the day, I don't think about it again. But then the next morning, when I wake up, my fingers feel really funny and I look down at my hand. My fingers that had been holding the phone had broken out into a gross rash Again, with the fucking rashes. And the middle finger had completely swollen. It was like a huge fucking gobstopper. It was painful and hideous. I went to the doctor. She was completely perplexed by it, said it could be connected to the rat. She gave me antibiotics. Eventually... The rash faded, the balloon gobstopper that was my middle finger deflated and pus seeped out from under the nail. And it was just one more thing that drove back to me how little control we have. Sometimes when you think you've cracked it, you can predict and plan and control and freeze and then a fucking rat comes along or SPD or you find out you're pregnant. Well, I've got bad news for people that like to be in control. This is Bridget Delaney. She's a journalist and author of the book Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times, which is all about the ancient philosophy of stoicism. The stoic perspective is that we really don't have much control at all. We have control over three things, and that is our character, our actions and reactions and how we treat others. But everything else, including our health, uh, including things like fertility, is out of our control. Stoics like Bridget use something called the control test. They ask whether something falls into one of these three categories. I can control my own character. I can control if I act with decency. I can control my wisdom and my courage. I can control how I handle adverse or positive things that happen in my life. 
I can control to some extent my actions, but often it's anyone who's got a job or is parenting or whatever, there's a lot of our actions that are dependent on others, so we don't have full control over that. And I can definitely control how I treat other people, but um, everything else is outside my control. And once you use the test and determine that something is outside of your control, you have to let it go. Stoicism is a practice. So, Mm. you know, you don't learn it once and then it becomes absorbed within you and you integrate it immediately. It's something that you have to keep reminding yourself. So I will go back to this control test daily when, you know, things happen that don't go my way. I'll go, well, did I have control over that? And if if I didn't, then I just put it aside. And because life is uncertain, there's always fucking curveballs. The skills that we can get from practicing stoicism could really help us. And a stoic would say that, you know, being tested is mm. a positive thing. Like you want to be tested. You don't want to mm. develop these these skills in stoicism and not ever need to use them. In fact, you're going to be using them all the time because you will get sick. People you love will die. You'll have losses throughout your life and it's really important to be able to start to manage those as soon as you can. Mm. What stoicism, I guess, kind of teaches you is this ability to bounce back and not wallow in it a little bit. The stoics call that suffering twice. So say, for example, your parent dies and that's really distressing. So that's the first loss. It's the loss of your parent. The second loss is excessive suffering. So maybe years and years of depression or not being able to go to work or not being able to recover, the Stoics say that second suffering can be avoided or its length can be avoided if you apply the control test and say, well, look, I can't control whether or not people live forever. So therefore, when this person dies, I can't avoid the first suffering, but I can definitely minimise or try and minimise the second. Bridget, there was another technique that I was reading about called negative visualisation. Can you explain that? So negative visualisation is an ancient Stoic technique, which is not for the faint-hearted, as with a lot of Stoicism. It involves imagining something terrible happening. So it could be someone you love dying. It could be before you go into the doctor's surgery. It's just imagining getting a terrible diagnosis. So you give yourself a little hit of negativity And the Stoics did that to kind of inoculate or prepare themselves for when the worst happened. And then it also had effects like if you did go in to the doctor and you didn't have some terrible disease, you'd be actually quite relieved and be more likely to value your health. It can be, I mean, you can overdo negative visualization. I, when I first started doing it, I found it hard to get out of it. So yeah, not not for everyone. I know when you said not for the faint-hearted and then you kind of explained what it was, I was like, I think I might be one of those people that then worries about too many things. But as you said there, might be something to try and stop yourself before you get to a point where it is unhelpful. Yeah, before you're ruminating. I mean, it's meant to be a helpful technique that you use just to enjoy the moment more. So another example might be, You meet up with friends you haven't seen for a while and maybe when you meet them you think, okay, this could be the last time I see these people. One of us could have an accident. There may be a break in the friendship. Um, They may go away and I'll never see them again. So I'm going to really enjoy this time with them. And so often we're not fully present with other people. We're on our phones. We're distracted. 
And a bit of negative visualization allows you to be really present with people in the moment because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, it could be the last time you see these people. So, you know, enjoy their company, um, enjoy the the experience of being with others. Yeah, there's quite a, a bit of gratefulness for the whatever the journey ends up being. The journey is going <laughs> like towards we death. We all know where the journey ends, um, <laughs> and we, you know, it's it's about enjoying life while we're in full flight and while we're in our lives. Mm, yeah. Um, one final little question: Does the like stoicism theory allow you to feel a hope? Uh no. <laughs> not really not really um there's and that's you know that's hotly debated I've definitely debated that with my friends a lot it's fascinating yeah Seneca one of the ancient Stoics has this kind of great line which is to hope is to fear so if you hope for something the I guess the mirror or the inverse emotion is fear fear that you won't get it Mm. and also hopes not necessarily grounded in reality like they were very much about Mm. taking a very clear-eyed view of taking the temperature of whatever's going on in your life you can want things but if you don't get them or if you kind of put your life on hold to get something that is not guaranteed you shouldn't be disappointed it's all about keeping that equilibrium so there's too much of a swing state when it comes to hope. There's too much of the negative emotions when your hopes are dashed or if your hopes are dashed. Yeah, look, I certainly have hopes in my own life. I haven't given up hopes, but I'm just aware that in stoicism it's not entirely kosher. Well, it's almost like you can have hope as long as your feet are still firmly planted on the ground in reality. Yeah, you definitely have to be in reality. Uh, look, and keep in mind as well, this doctrine was 2,000 years old. So, you know, like if you got sick or if something had happened to you in ancient times, there was no kind of miracle cure. There were no sort of the medicines that we have now didn't exist. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of point in hoping for stuff because technology couldn't really support that hope. But it's a bit different now. Uh, well, I think that this is really helped me and I think that it's giving me a lot to chew on, Bridget. Dive deep. Dive deep towards death. (laughs) Well, no, dive deep towards fully enjoying your life in the time that we have. That's right. That's a nice, that's a better way of putting it. I know we've talked about hope on this podcast and I'm not ready to say goodbye to it just yet, but I really appreciate the sharp reality check of Bridget's stoicism practice. I want to be thinking about that test to let go of certain things that truly are out of my control. I want to feel that sort of appreciation for what we have. The head is right here. In the time we have it. Oh, I'm going to touch it. You have to poke. What? Poke it? Yeah. It's sort of a way to live in the moment that's quite freeing. That's the head. And then feel like here, that's where there's no nothing. But am I going to like wake it up? We only have one name and I can say it because it's going to come 
out after the baby's born. We were driving one day and there was a like a business park. Do you know what they are? It's like a um, an industrial estate where there's lots of offices. I said to my father, I was like, what do you think of the concept of a business park? He's like, what do you mean, as a name? I was like, yes, as a name. He's like, I like it. So we've been calling it business park the whole time. I love business park. Yeah, busy. Busy. Busy P? Busy. <laughs> yeah, we named our baby after an electro DJ from the early 2000s. I can't wait till it's born. Little business park. What do you have to say, baby? <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Tough Love. No book deal and no book sales are worth your family being upset by something. I would find myself in these binds where I've said yes and committed to so many things. Ah, and I'd be going fucking insane. I got so embarrassed that I stormed out of the bookstore. There is a wiser present day Linda riding these passengers mm. that's very matter of fact, but the subtext is this is messed up. I'm a fucking egotistical asshole. Tough Love is a podcast by me, Linda Mariano. It's produced by me, Amelia Chapelo, and Adair Shepherd, with support from Mike Williams. Into the bush. Want to find out what happens next? Follow Tough Love so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, why not support us by rating and leaving a review? Help us connect with more tough cookies like you. And you know I always love hearing from you. If you want to get in touch, you can email me, hellotoughlove at gmail.com, or you can say hello on Instagram, at toughloveteam. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Love you. Ciao, ciao. Hey, it's Linda. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Tough Love. I wanted to let you know that my book, Love Language, is out now. It's a true story about the ways that we show love. It's a memoir that centers around my family, music, food, and falling in and out of love a few times. I also write about people-pleasing, guilt, and perfectionism, and yeah, there's a lot of very juicy scenes in there. So if you like this podcast, then I hope that you'll read the book. It's out now at all good bookstores across Australia. It can be shipped online overseas to wherever you are, and if you'd prefer to have the book read aloud to you by me, then you can also get the audiobook. All the links are in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening.